you would please stand as we read God's word. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others, while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift, the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. Please be seated. It's a very rough time for the electric guitar market. Sales have plunged uh, annually from 1.5 million to just 1 million. The two lead manufacturers of electric guitars, Gibson and Fender, are in considerable debt. In April, Moody's downgraded Guitar Center, which is the largest retailer, because they are carrying $1.6 billion in debt. So people were wrestling with the question, what in the world has happened in American culture, right? One of the instruments that perhaps defines American culture is the electric guitar. Why suddenly is there no interest in purchasing and learning to play the electric guitar? Well, you could turn to somebody like George Grun, who is a lifetime 71-year-old electric guitar dealer in Nashville, Tennessee, one of the capitals of the American music industry. And he sold guitars to Eric Clapton, Neil Young, Paul McCartney, and Taylor Swift. And Grunt thinks he knows what is happening. He says, what we need is guitar heroes. As back 30 years ago, we had heroes walking around showing what could be done with an electric guitar. People like Jimi Hendrix. Young people looked to those individuals and said, you're doing amazing things with an instrument, and I want to emulate what you're doing. He says, today that position is vacated. There are no great electric guitarists that people are looking to as inspiration. He said, the closest thing we have is Taylor Swift, but nobody wants to play the guitar like Taylor Swift. They just want to look like Taylor Swift. He says, as a result, nobody's moving forward in this direction. It's not the music that dominates our culture anymore. Now, what a metaphor for the church, right? That there is a certain degree of debt in the church in terms of living out our calling, right? in terms of actually practicing what it means to be a faithful disciple. And is part of that problem the lack of heroes, the lack of perhaps stewardship heroes, people who demonstrate that my citizenship is not in this world And I demonstrate it because the way I use my time and my energy and my money reflects where my heart actually is. It reveals to the world that I'm very committed to a kingdom that is not of this world. 
And if we have a lack of those kinds of heroes, then who are young people looking to? Who's inspiring them to live the faith in a substantial or perhaps even radical way? This is one of the themes that we've been trying to get at, right, in the notion in the context of our series on stewardship. God gives all of us resources. What do we do with those resources? At the heart of each week really has been Matthew 6.21. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. We've raised the question almost every week, where is your treasure? Because where your treasure is, where your time, your money, your thoughts, your energy, where your treasure is, that's where your heart exists. When you evaluate your treasure, would you really say, yes, my heart is bound up with the character and kingdom of God? Or would you have to admit that my heart is really attached to other things? We conclude our series today with 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 9, verses 6 through 15, in which Paul famously says, God loves a cheerful giver. So we begin with the question, are you a cheerful giver? Do you engage in giving resources with kind of an open hand, delighting in participating in God's agenda? Well, I'm not necessarily speaking to you, but to answer that question for the evangelical church is quite easy. The answer is no. Right? And we've talked in weeks past about how uh, giving has dropped dramatically over the last 30 years of the church. We don't need to belabor that notion, but to remind you, uh, one in four evangelicals give nothing, not even a token $5 a year. We noted as well that committed Christians, and really remarkably, if you took uh, people who claim to be committed Christians, what does that mean? It means that you say that your faith is very, you take your faith very seriously, it informs your life, and you go to church at least two times per month. If we took the, the uh, aggregated wealth of that group of people, right, those people who qualify as committed Christians, it would be $2.7 trillion, which would put us in the G7, right? The largest economies on earth, right? One of those would be committed Christians. And yet, when we analyze the giving of that group of people, us, who collectively make $2.7 trillion, we realize that our giving is roughly averages between 2 and 3%. And if we were to assume, if we ask the question, what if the church actually gave generously? What if, even if we took into account those people who are not capable of giving 10% of their income, what if we took that into account? How much more would the church be giving today? And roughly it comes out to about $80 billion. Right? You know how much ministry can be done for $80 billion? How many uh, lives could be changed? How many wells could be dug? Churches built, ministries expand into closed countries. On and on and on. If we were cheerful givers. So we at least have to wrestle. Perhaps you consider yourself a cheerful giver, and maybe you are. But to be sure, we all have to wrestle this morning with what Paul means and ask ourselves, am I truly a cheerful giver? Do I see the resources in my life as something that God has entrusted to me that really are not my own, but something to be used for his kingdom? This is a very hard challenge, right? Because we live in a country in which our narrative, if you remember one of the old uh, 
I think it was an insurance commercial um, where a, a guy would say, you know, we make our money the old-fashioned way. We earn it. Right? That's an American story. You have what you have because you've worked hard. You've earned it, and therefore you get to spend it the way you think is most fit. Is that a biblical story? Well, let's consider Paul's teaching here uh, before we answer that question. To break down this, uh, this passage, we're going to consider, uh, first, the nature of a cheerful heart. And secondly, we'll consider the source of a cheerful heart. And third, the blessing of a cheerful heart. So we're trying to get our, our minds and our hearts wrapped around this notion of what it means to be a cheerful giver. Right? And so we'll ask, what is the nature of cheerful giving, the source of cheerful giving, and the blessing of cheerful giving? So first, the nature of cheerful giving. A little background might help to understand this passage. Paul is raising money. There is a severe famine in the Jerusalem church. And... Uh, Paul is raising money for the Jerusalem Christians because, uh, in effect, they're starving. Paul has just been to the church in Macedonia where he's also raised money, and he makes clear to the Corinthians that he's raised money in Macedonia by bragging on the Corinthians. Right? So he said, Macedonians, you should really give. You won't believe how generous the Corinthians have been and how, what a blessing it's been to them. But he also knows that he's headed to Corinth, right, to collect again for this, uh, for this gift to the Jerusalem church. And apparently some of the Macedonians are intending to go with Paul's entourage to visit, visit the church in Corinth. So Paul seems to be a little bit concerned. First of all, he's concerned that everyone's going to show up and the Corinthians are not going to be generous. So he seems to be, he's sending a forward team with this letter saying, listen, I hope my bragging hasn't been in vain. Don't let me down. But he also seems not to want to put the Corinthians in an awkward spot where everyone shows up, says, okay, now make a gift according to your heart. There's a lot of pressure in that situation. And Paul seems to genuinely want the gift to be according to what they've intentioned in their heart. And so this is the letter. This is what's being written to encourage their giving to help them to think about it in a proper way. And it's in that context that in verses 5 and 7, Paul begins to speak of this nature of a cheerful giver, which, of course, is as well a cheerful uh, heart in that giving. If you look at verses 6 and 7, Paul writes, The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Now, in one sense, I think it's important to remember that this is in no way a new idea. This is a very old theme, biblically, that what we give reveals what's in our heart, and the more we give, the more opportunity we have to receive from God. So we could turn to Proverbs 11, 24, and 25, where the author writes, "'One gives freely, yet grows all the richer.'" Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. Whoever brings blessing will be enriched, and one who waters will himself be watered. That God has a certain disposition towards those who cheerfully give to reward them in a certain capacity. So, we have to make several observations here. And the first is terribly important because this is a very popular verse with brands of Christianity that we would term health and wealth. Right? Oh, if you sow a lot, 
give a lot, you're going to reap a lot. What Paul is saying is the more you give away, the more you're going to get in return. Is that what Paul's saying? It's certainly not primarily what Paul is saying. Might God return to you in some economic sense what you have given away? Certainly that's a possibility. Certainly there are verses that even suggest that that happens at various times. Probably the more generous you are, the more free your heart is to give cheerfully, the more you'll be entrusted with. But that's not Paul's primary purpose here. And to use this verse and that capacity of supporting a health and wealth notion is to really misappropriate the passage. Paul's going to go on and say, this is about an increase of your righteousness, and it's about the glory of God and his kingdom being expanded. That's what we reap when we sow. That leads us to the second observation in this passage, which, remarkably, Paul doesn't talk about giving simply as giving, but he talks about giving as sowing. We might tend to think about giving as, I'm going to be separated from these resources, I'm going to give them away, and I'm never going to get them back, and it's just part of what I'm doing as being, as being a Christian. Uh, we might think of it in the terms of a balance sheet, and all of a sudden there's deficit. I just have red, and I'm going to absorb that red for the good of the kingdom. Paul doesn't use that language. He says, what you give is actually a seed. It's actually going into the ground, and God is the one who will cause it to grow, which means that no Christian giving is actually loss. It's investment in a harvest. It's investment in a kingdom that's growing, which is a pretty radically different way to think about giving. Now, the third observation we need to make about the nature of a cheerful giver that is, uh, is that reaping happens in proportion to sowing. Right? Is that not what Paul says? You'll reap according to what you sow? So let me ask you this. Does your faith feel flat? Does God feel distant? Do you struggle to experience joy in the notion of participating in the kingdom? I'm not saying that it's necessarily the case, but you would at least have to ask based on this passage, is that the result of small sowing? Are you reaping little because you have sown little? And in reality, it should be your expectation that you wouldn't experience significant things because you have not really expressed faith in terms of sowing in a cheerful capacity. The fourth thing that we need to observe here is that giving is intentional. Right? Paul says that giving is something to be weighed. In verse 7, each one must give as he has decided in his heart. Right? Not reluctantly or under compulsion. Now this means that we actually should be a people who are thinking deeply and weighing our resources and how they might be expended as uh, participating in the kingdom. You're not to give uh, reluctantly or under compulsion. It's not something that you do because you think you have to, but it's something you do because you actually want to. Right, we might think of Ananias and Sapphira, who felt like they were supposed to give something to the church. And so they brought a gift to the apostles, but they lied about the nature of that gift and God took their lives because they had lied to the Holy Spirit. Okay. Now, the flip side of this is important as well. Sometimes we think that giving should be, oh, uh, very, very romantic, right? Giving should be something that's spontaneous. It's based on a cheerful heart 
And it's supposed to be something that's intentional, something that's weighed. And so sometimes you think, well, I just don't have that spirit. Sometimes people will even go down a road of thinking something like, well, you know, 10%, I'm not very cheerful about that. Maybe 5%. Nope, still not feeling cheer. 2.5%, well, I'm not not feeling cheer. 2%, I'm cheery about giving 2%. So 2% is what I'm going to give. And now I'm a cheerful giver. Right? Not really what Paul is intending here. Right? Our lack of cheer should not be opportunity for us to give less, but for us to examine our hearts and why we lack cheer in the process of, of actually uh, being cheerful givers. So this is what we're describing in terms of the nature of a cheerful giver. Right? The giving is not just giving away something. It's not just this labor. It's actually sowing. In the distribution of your gifts, you are a farmer participating in what God will reap eternally. The heart of a cheerful giver is characterized by the belief that I will reap in proportion to what I sow. This encourages me to give more generously because I believe that I'll reap more from my relationship with God. And third, a cheerful heart is intentional. How easy it is for us to push any thought of giving, any thought of stewardship of our financial resources to the back burner and say, I'm just not going to think about it. And we go on with our life and we commit all of our resources and it just kind of sits on the back burner. But Paul is, is exhorting the Corinthian church. I'm writing you a letter so that you can be thoughtful about this and your giving should be thoughtful and you should be prepared for what requests is coming upon you. This, this is what characterizes the nature of a cheerful giver. It's pretty hard to live that way. Pretty hard to see an outgoing of resources. Even if we believe those things, how do we, how do we remain sustained in that cheerfulness, in that posture of cheerful giving? Well, to do that, we would have to understand the source, right? our second point, the source of cheerful giving, which is, all, of course, uh, God himself. Look at verses 8 and 9 with me. Paul writes, And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. You see, Paul is saying you may be nervous about giving away a certain degree of resources. You might feel unsettled. Paul says, Do not be fearful. God is going to provide for you that which you need that you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. God is the one. He is the source of cheerful giving because he is the ultimate gift giver. Right? In 10, Paul goes on to say, both the sower and the one who eats the bread both do so because God has provided it. And why has he provided these resources for us to be givers? In verse 10, it's so that we would increase in righteousness. In other words, God looks down upon us, rescued in Jesus Christ, but knows we are not what we are intended to be. And so he says, I will, I will fashion a system, I will prepare good works beforehand, as Paul writes in Ephesians 2, but that you should engage in. And he does this to grow us up, to grow us in righteousness. An analogy might be, why does a parent issue an allowance? Right? I will, if you do this labor, I will give you resources, and I will teach you how to use those resources, and this is how you record 
a checkbook and how you balance a checkbook. Why? Because you want to grow them up in maturity and wisdom and how they exercise their resources. God desires the same for you. He's providing everything that you might be generous and in that generosity actually experience a degree of liberation, which we'll come to uh, shortly. You might ask, if this is so good, right? God's providing it. We're called to be generous. Who wouldn't want to be a cheerful giver? What keeps us from being? We've already said we're really not, at least as a, as a, as a body of committed believers. So what prevents us from being generous? What prevents us from having a cheerful heart and giving? I think it ultimately comes down to what Paul is expressing in terms of what we would believe. And this he intimates in, in verse 15, right? Even as he's exhorting the Corinthians, he says, Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Even as Paul challenges the Corinthians to give, out of cheerful hearts, he realizes that ultimately all this cheerful giving is the result of God's cheerful giving of his own son, which uh, Paul perhaps best puts in, uh, in Romans 8.32, when he writes, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Right? We're not talking about being cheerful givers before a stingy God. We're talking about being cheerful givers before the greatest giver of all time. And so I think it, to some degree, if we don't really want to be a cheerful giver, it is in part because we don't really believe that God is generous. We don't really believe that he's going to give or has given in the way that he says he will. And so we take our, our, uh, the responsibility of providing for all of our needs and all of our happiness upon ourselves which, of course, is something that only ends in disappointment. A second reason that I can think of of what prevents us from being cheerful and giving is that ultimately righteousness is not really what you're interested in reaping. It would be really fun to ask you all right now, you know, what do you think would be the, bring you the most happiness in your life today? All right, if you had a carte blanche, God just showed up and said, you know, what do you want? You get to name it. Would any of us say, well, God, what I would really like to do is increase in righteousness. Can you make that happen for me? It reveals that, in part, because of our brokenness, is not the deepest longing of our heart. And the irony of it is that God has already prescribed for us here how to grow in righteousness, how to increase, to be a cheerful giver. But when we ask a question like that, we realize that, yeah, righteousness isn't really what I'm after. I'd really like um, financial success or this new group of friends or to be more popular or a better spouse or a spouse. And on and on it goes, whatever we might name. Right? Those are the things that we think will deliver us from our current strife rather than an increase in righteousness. So we're disappointed, perhaps, in what God offers the third reason that sometimes I see cheerful giving fall by the wayside is conflict. Oftentimes, over the years, I've seen marriages in which one spouse is committed to a certain idea of cheerful giving, and another spouse is committed to another level of cheerful giving. And they're quite simply just not on uh, the same page. And so tension arises, and to avoid that tension, they decide that 
You know, we're just not going to talk about it. We're not going to address it. I've even seen children moved by the Spirit have remarkably um, cheerful hearts in terms of giving, right? Only to have parents who are not in the same place say, you know, you're kind of scaring me. Your level of cheerfulness in giving, it seems kind of crazy. I would rather see you spend your money not so liberally on needs of the poor or kingdom causes, but I, you know, I've seen parents even say something like, you know, why don't you go get a Nintendo like every other kid? Right? And that the generosity, the cheerfulness is what? It's convicting to the parent. And it's a lot easier if everyone kind of exists in a similar fashion and spends money in a similar fashion. And unless someone has the courage to seek to please God more than man, we can be trapped in these places in our households uh, rather than having cheerful, generous hearts. And so what is it to rely on God's grace as the source of our cheerful giving? Well, you've got to remember the gift, right? Paul says, thank God for this inexpressible gift. And he says in Romans 8, what do you think God is going to hold back from you if he's giving you his son? Right? What do you, where do you think God is not going to deliver? It means believing and sowing, not just in giving a gift that you think is, okay, I had to do this, but that you're actually investing in something. Calvin actually uh, wrote that when we are weary of doing good, and we're weary of being cheerful givers, what is the best recourse? Calvin would say the best recourse is to remind yourself that you are actually sowing a seed that produces fruit and contributes to a harvest. And then to look forward to the benefits. Well, we've intimated at some of the benefits of having a cheerful heart and cheerful giving. But what really is being held out here as a proper benefit? It's kind of a ridiculous and beautiful notion, although challenging. And it occurs in verses 12 and 13. Paul writes, For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution. Now notice that phrase in verse 13. Paul writes, listen, this is going to result in great thanksgiving to God. People are going to glorify God. Why? Because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Your submission that comes as a result of a confession in the gospel of Jesus Christ. In other words, Paul says this is going to be a great thing because what you're doing is actually submitting your own uh, selfish, broken will to what you confess to be true by faith. And in that very act, you communicate to your own heart and to the world that you really believe what you talk about. Now, when we don't do that, we produce a terrible tension. When we do say, I confess that I believe that God is generous, I believe that he provides the good gifts for me to be a cheerful giver, and then we do not submit to those ideas and actually engage in cheerful giving. That's just one example of the many tensions that we create for ourselves to live in. It's a very difficult place to exist when our confession and our submission to that confession don't go together. We live in a dissociative way. There's uh, the Pulitzer Foundation sponsored a really stunning uh, examination of some of the children who have been kidnapped uh, to be employed as child soldiers for Boko Haram. 
Uh, it talks about how in the early 2000s, the early aughts, uh, certain clerics started speaking boldly in Nigeria and starting a new movement called Boko Haram, which essentially translated means uh, defy Western education. And people started gathering to him, but at first nobody paid any attention. It wasn't a big deal. But soon, out in the villages where they were uh, living and selling goods, uh, people would start to come with guns and tour through and buy goods and start to talk to the people. And recruiting began, and then recruiting led to violent uh, overthrows of certain villages, and then that led to them kidnapping an entire generation of boys that would serve as boy soldiers for Boko Haram and be committed to unspeakable atrocities, uh, things that we can't even talk about uh, because of uh, how diverse the ages are in our gathering. So part of the article or this examination was how in the world can a 10 and 11 and 12-year-old boy who's grown up fishing on the banks of a river and known a, a relatively peaceful life become this war machine, as they're forced to do, right? They're trained by doing these crazy acts. Well, part of it is, um, is psychologists would say they ha they, at that point, when they start to be involved in violent acts, part of them disappears. It gets put away very deeply in their subconscious, and they live dissociatively, almost as if you're going through a dream. Because the decision for them is, I either obey or I die. And so they start to obey, and they live a dissociative uh, life. Now that, right, that is a picture of the brokenness of this world. Right? We exist in a place, right, fallen in sin, surrounded by evil, scary as all get out for all the things that can happen. And we start to live dissociatively, right, from the garden forward, right, part of us, the part of us that was made in the image of God recedes, and a part that learns or tries to figure out how to survive in this world comes forward. Then redemption happens, right? And God calls out a new man, what he has intended for you and I to be. And in that calling out, there's a process of putting the old man to death. And this is why God, in part, calls you to be a cheerful giver. We live in one of the richest, most materialistic nations of the world, that is absolutely saturated by the brokenness of greed. And God knows you, know, you will not emerge and mature in the midst of this unless you are called upon to actually give up the resources that define power and success and wealth in this culture. But to the degree that you do, what are you doing? You're submitting to the confession that you make. Right? You confess that Jesus is king and has all riches and that God has spared no expense and so you say, this, this money that I hold in my hand, or my time, or my energy, whatever you might cling most fiercely with the whitest knuckles, you can open your hand. And it's at that point that you submit to the confession that you make with your mouth. And it's at that point that God is truly glorified and thanksgiving erupts because you're liberated. You stop living dissociatively as you have, and you actually embrace the confession that you make. And in that, you become a hero. The kind of heroes that the church needs today. The kind of people demonstrating a radical willingness to part with what defines success and wealth and power in this world and a willingness to sow the seeds that actually make the kingdom grow. Let's pray.
Our Father, we thank you for your great generosity and goodness toward us. We thank you that you have spared nothing and that we can even speak about truly being cheerful givers because you have been such a radical gift giver on our behalf. We praise you and we thank you this morning. We thank you for the gospel, which is the good news that we are rescued in Jesus Christ and pray that you would, you would help us to not seek life in what this world promises, but instead to live out our heavenly citizenship and to use the resources that we have here to sow many seeds. As the years come, would you help us to be a people that increasingly reaps a larger harvest because we have been willing to sow uh, a greater number of seeds. We ask for your grace in this in Christ's name. Amen.